Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Implicit bias involves the use of examples to form broader rules. The last winners of the marathon were Ethiopians, so Ethiopians are fast and enjoy running. It's a way the brain works. It's thinking in heuristics, and not even attorneys are immune. Today we'll take a look at implicit bias in the legal profession. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today it's an honor to have Paulette Brown. She's a partner at Lock Lord and the first woman of color to serve as the president of the American Bar Association. Paulette, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Today we're talking about implicit bias. I think it would be good to start with a basic question. What is implicit bias? Implicit bias is when we have thoughts that we basically don't have control over. So it's our brain is telling us to make decisions or to do things without giving us notice or giving us warning that it's going to do that. Like a mental reflex. Exactly. And so it can affect our decision making because we don't realize that we're thinking certain things about certain things or people and we don't realize that we're doing it, but it's causing us to make decisions in a certain way. The main issue that we're talking about today is implicit bias as a form of discrimination. Can, are there some other examples of implicit bias that can be incorrect or uh, logically wrong? So there are a number of things that implicit bias can be a real negative. So there are a lot of things that causes us to have implicit biases. There are certain things that are ingrained in us over a period of time. So that when I was growing up, for example, I watched a lot of Westerns. And so the good guys always rode white horses and the bad guys always rode black horses. So when you start thinking about those things and getting those messages at an earlier age, you start thinking white is good, black is bad. Mm. The media plays a big role in all of this and just general culture and the things around us. I wonder if there's some connections in the legal profession as well. When we think of famous judges, when we think of famous lawyers, they're often men. And does that, they're often white men. And how does that impact the way lawyers, but you know, also the society at large sees justice and sees those who are advocates of justice? So, you know, based upon particular people's culture backgrounds, I'll tell you a, a funny story in a minute, but better, basically, it's what people they're exposed to and what their perceptions are. So I was a judge at one point in time for about three years. And my nephew, who was very young at the time, he came to my court and every person I introduced him to was a female judge. And when he met his first male judge, he said, I thought all judges were women. <laughs> so so it's kind of, exactly. So it's a lot has to do with what we're exposed to. But when you have situations where people are all of the same whatever, you're gonna get not the best decisions about things and people not realizing uh, what kind of biases they can have because they are accustomed to one thing and their own little world and their own little in-group. 
Um, and so that's why it's really important to have different people exposed to different things. Sandra Day O'Connor said one of the best things that happened helped her give better decisions on the Supreme Court was when Thurgood Marshall came on the Supreme Court. She didn't necessarily change her ultimate decision, but it made her consider other factors so that she would have never. This was the first female justice, right. talking about the benefit of the first African American justice. justice, right? And the benefits worked both ways um, because there's certain things that you're not exposed to, or certain things that you're constantly exposed to. So you formulate different opinions, whether they're true or not. There's something called confirmation bias. So when you hear or think something about somebody you are going to create situations to confirm that belief. Mm. So if you think that African-Americans, for example, commit crimes, and then somebody appears before you, you say, aha, I knew that that's what they do. So I'm going to give, I'm going to throw the book at them. So um, one of the things I did when I was president of the ABA was I created training tools for judges, prosecutors, and public defenders on implicit bias. And so fortunate enough to have some judges actually talk about their own biases on video so that they could train other biases. And there was an effort. Very brave. Oh, yeah, I thought so. But it made it really powerful. It made other judges less apprehensive about doing the training, too. And one African-American judge said he sentenced a white um man to prison and the white defendant accused him of discriminating against him because he was white. And he said he was so upset nobody had ever accused him of discrimination before. He said, so he went back and looked at his record to see whether he was really discriminating against white defendants. And the opposite was true. He was discriminating against African-American defendants. Well, they were getting much harsher sentences. As lawyers, we often think of ourselves as this bastion of equality and justice. When you look at the numbers, the legal profession really doesn't have that much to be proud of when it comes to racial and gender equality, do we? No, we don't. Um, there have been really, really modest improvements um, in all areas with respect to women, with respect to people of color, with respect to the LGBT community. And now people are finally looking at people with disabilities hmm. and hoping, I'm hoping that people understand that all disabilities are not visible. Um, and so, so we have a lot of work to do in those areas. Um, and with regard to women in law firms, you know, about 17 to 18% are, are equity partners. But when you look at women of color, with respect to Asians, it's about 1.12%. Hispanics is about 0.68%. And African-American, 0.64% wow. are equity partners. And women of color in America make up about... 20% of the population. Right. And, and also in terms of graduating from law school, they are a significant portion, much higher than the statistics um, with respect to equity partners. So we can think of the implicit bias mindset that we talked about earlier being reinforced and some of this confirmation bias that you were talking about as well still going on today when you think of a judge, if 60% of the state judges are white males, you might think of a white male. And if you think of a, a big law partner, if it's overwhelmingly white men still, that bias may, may sit even in equality-minded lawyers when they think of which one of my associate looks like 
looks like they could join the partnership? It goes a, a little deeper than that. So it's not just the fact of you have these large percentages of white males. It's how did you get to that point? And I think that we don't look far enough upstream to see how we got to this point or what we could do to have stopped some of it or interrupted some of the biases that occur. Um, and so one of the things that happened is that what happens with all of us is that we are naturally inclined to move towards people who we think are like us. And so when we do that, uh, we just perpetuate what's been going on um, all along. Moving towards people that are like us, what do you mean? So if I come into a room, I think it's really funny. So when I do a training and I, I walk around the room, somebody comes and sits at a table and the next person comes in and they look at that person and they said, oh, we work in the same department. I'm going to sit with him as opposed to starting a new table. And so then the it's next a, person. A tribalism. So the next person comes in the room and looks and says, mm, I'm in, I'm a paralegal. I'm not in the accounting department. I'm going to sit at this table. And, and I'm telling you, that's exactly what happened. You will find people who are just who they think are like them. And that's where they will gravitate even in a setting like that, in terms of where they will sit. And so if that's the way we as people tend to act, perhaps it's not a surprise that that may apply to race, that may apply to it, it, other It permeates, groups. and even with regard to people who have unearned privileges, they don't think that other people don't have those same privileges. And so they make certain assumptions about certain things. They've started on third base, and they think that the person who's in the dugout also started on third base. And so they should automatically know certain things. And when they don't, then you go back to the confirmation bias. Aha, I told you they weren't really qualified to do this job. Let's unpack that a little. I think, <laughs> I think what you're saying is, is, is quite powerful. But are you saying basically if you grow up attending the, the best schools with the finest teachers because your family perhaps comes from means. Uh, and then when you interact in college with um, a minority, perhaps from a, a different background. Like mine. Like yours. Right. You grew up in, in Maryland? In Baltimore. No one went to college. No one went to college. Right. And am I right that even the schools that you attended were... Segregated, segregated till 10th grade. Mm -hmm. That we could have you come back and do a whole separate conversation <laughs> on. But when you experienced that, did you were you able to see firsthand that perhaps you were being painted with a broad brush as someone who perhaps didn't belong? So, so it's it's interesting because in in that context, uh, many many times people don't realize it who have had privilege, the impact of someone who has not had it. So let me give you an example. I remember when I first joined my firm, it wasn't called Lock Lord back then, but I started helping with on-campus interviews. And I looked and one of the questions that they asked was, what lawyer influenced you to go to law school? <laughs> I'm like- yeah, I didn't know anyone. I'm was. like, <laughs> you cannot ask that question. And, and the person I was talking to was this absolutely wonderful person, but you know, she grew up here. I think both of her parents were doctors. She was a doctor. You know, I mean, her husband's a doctor. And so she could not imagine 
anyone not knowing a lawyer growing up. And so that was, and I said, no, there are many people. I said, if we're looking for diversity in this firm, we can't ask people what lawyers they knew growing <laughs> up. And she said, how could you not have known a lawyer? Anyway, it was an interesting conversation, but her questions were quite innocent. But it is, again, you know, sometimes people who have privileges, they don't realize that other people have not had the same privileges. So, so they just march right along and think everybody should be at the same place as they are. And when they're not, then something's wrong with that person who's not at the same place, not taking into account that they've had privileges. Because when you have privileges, you don't always realize that you have them. So, Let's look at implicit bias in the legal profession today, the types, examples that you've seen or heard about. Okay, so there's confirmation bias, as we talked about before. There's still a maternal wall bias. Um, there's still a what? Maternal wall. Maternal wall. Yes, which is, you know, people make certain assumptions about women, even if they're single or if they're married about their availability. So when I hire a, a female associate, maybe in the back of my mind, I think she's probably not committed. She's she's going to leave in six years as soon as she or less. is ready to have a kid. Or less. or less. And the way they work will be more scrutinized even if all of the work is being done. So sometimes when people have children, they will work a certain number of hours, then they'll go home and attend to their children, and then they'll log back on. Sometimes people see that as a lack of commitment because you're just not working straight through. Uh, but also assuming that, for example, and that's a combination of maternal wall and leniency bias, when a person comes back from paternity leave and they have been working on a big deal before they left, assuming that they can't work on that big deal anymore because they now have children, no. So that's both maternal wall and leniency because you think you're doing them a favor by not asking them to do that heavy lifting anymore when you haven't Why don't even you asked them. What the leniency is? Is that so? Is that something that that perhaps leniency is when you two things. One is is when, for example, a woman comes back from maternity leave and you think you're being helpful by not putting her back on the big deals that she was originally on oh, because, because it may be you too much to help her exactly you may think, have more time with her children right you think that it may be too much for her too soon it might be but you should ask first you shouldn't assume the other leniency happens in the evaluation process you don't want to make a person feel badly if you give them a bad review um, which is a terrible thing because if you don't do honest and constructive reviews People can't learn from their mistakes. They have no idea what they are, and therefore they can't correct them, and it will ultimately end up in a separation. So perhaps men feel less comfortable giving a, a hard criticism to a female colleague, than, or less, than they would to a male. Or to a person of color. And it generally happens more with people of color, the leniency evaluations, um, and there's, there's never an opportunity to improve. And then they say, oh, no, they can't do the work. They have to go. And I, I know from my experience in the law firm setting, not related to diversity per se, but generally speaking, what happens if partners aren't happy with, with an associate's work isn't necessarily that they make a big stink. They just stop staffing that person on the deal. And if that results in you know, less work, that may be the, you know, the, the short track out of the firm. Correct. So a lot of times what happens is, is that um, if a person 
is working on a deal who looks like you and you're in charge of the deal, you're more likely to, if the person makes a mistake, you're like more likely to go to that person and say, you made this mistake. Fix it. Fix it. As opposed to um, me, if I made the mistake, you'll say, she's, you know, <laughs> I knew she would make those kind of mistakes. And you would not say anything to me, but you would tell all the other partners that Paulette made this mistake and maybe you shouldn't use her. Um, and so, you know. Without giving you the opportunity to correct, to correct it. it or correct improve. it. Right. Exactly. How about fear? Because as lawyers, we are human. And maybe they're afraid of saying you made a mistake because they don't want to be accused of some type of discrimination or bias. Oh, I can't stand excuses. You know, I mean, that is a pet peeve of mine is when people make excuses about why they've done something. Because if you don't do it for this person, there's no reason for you not to do it with regard to, to another person. So, you know, I, I've seen situations where even with regard to people of color, they've taken too long to let them go when they really needed to go <laughs> um, because they were afraid, you know, they were being lenient and, and they started being lenient when they didn't take corrective measures in the first place. But then on the flip side, then they then say, well, we don't want to hire another person of color because that this is work. what, exactly. Whereas, whereas if it had been a white man, you'll hire another white man, won't you? So, but you know, that's, that's the way it works sometimes. But you know, leniency bias can be really harmful, especially to people of color. And I just want to point out, when I talk about always diversity, I always talk about diversity and inclusion because you can have any number of people sitting around um, who are diverse, but if they don't feel like they're fabric of the firm, then there's gonna be some separation and it doesn't matter. It's just a number, it's a revolving door. That's an interesting point. So you might actually have a very diverse firm, but if it's a revolving door of different diverse people, different diverse people who never are made part of the fabric of the firm, then you're not getting quite there. You're not getting there at all. Not getting there at all. In my opinion. Another thing that I want to talk about is, and I'm, I, I see maybe you throwing it into the excuse category, and I know you hate excuses, but firms will say, look, I'm not biased. My clients are. How do you get around that? So that's going to be very tricky to say that these days because the clients are really driving firms to be more diverse right now. Um, I hate to keep tooting my horn, but one of the things that we did, I got a lot of things done in the one year time. We passed a resolution called Resolution 113. I don't know whether you've heard of the ABA Model Diversity Survey. Uh -huh. uh, right, so me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things we did was we passed this Resolution 113, which asked um, people who were spenders of legal dollars to use more of their legal spend on diverse lawyers, women, people of color, people with disabilities, members of LGBT groups. And so there have been a lot of similar um, initiatives like that. So we needed something to make people accountable. So we did Giving the model. Giving the power of the purse 
putting them in the driver's seat for more diversity and inclusion. Correct. So what the companies are doing, they're not just signing on to Resolution 113, but they're telling then their law firms, you must fill out this model diversity survey. Um, and it's called model because hopefully more people will use it so there won't be different types of surveys so that you can really measure apples to apples and oranges to oranges. And people can see when it's a revolving door and there are different people moving about and general counsels are sharing it with other general counsels. So I think that firms as, as a whole are going to start to work harder to have not just diverse attorneys, but to have them included in working on the matters that um, they do. And I think that when you start doing that and you start giving credit monetary credit for um, those diverse lawyers who are actually doing the work or bringing in the work, then that is going to cause more diverse people to stay longer hmm. in their firms and have the power and influence to bring other people along into the firm because they'll then have the gravitas to say, I have this amount of business. I want to hire this associate. I want to be this person's sponsor and make sure they get all the right opportunities to move up like I did. So these types of programs also enable clients to reward and reinforce this good behavior in their in the law firms they, they choose. Right. And they're also looking at it from, um, from a... a economic perspective, um, too, in the way that sometimes law firms don't look at the cost of attrition, but clients really look at the cost of attrition because they don't want to keep having to pay an associate to, to come up to speed, up. to come up to speed. And so this model diversity survey, whereas you could only see with some of the other surveys, um, just numbers, it can tell you who's leaving and who's new and who's coming in and out the door. So they don't like that cost um, that is filtered down to them when, when there's no retention. So I think that those things will help law firms take a broader look at who they're using, how they're using them, even where they sit them in the office. Are they too far away from partners or too far away from the center of power for people to even come out of their doors and find them to give them work? And that would be a way of redressing some of the confirmation bias that we were talking about earlier, where um, perhaps if you see that people of color don't, don't last as long at your firm, maybe you don't want to staff them on, on important deals that would be long lasting. Right. Um, and maybe this way, a way to turn that around. Right. There could be a way to turn around. But, you know, I, I think that the, one of the good things right now is that it's it's client-driven. And we respond to clients. <laughs> Lawyers we are, we if want, anything, We want to, to make our clients happy <laughs> or happier. And so they're, they're letting us know that you can make us very happy because you've got these people there who are obviously capable. Put those capable people on our deals. Let's talk about some of the impact of implicit bias on the profession at large. So it starts, it starts early on because you don't have um, the group of people coming into the professions, but you have certain perceptions of the justice system um, and who gets incarcerated, who does not get incarcerated. It's so easy um, for prosecutors in particular to check themselves because when I talked about the over-prosecution, and prosecutors have more power than anybody else in the judicial system, in my opinion. And a lot of discretion. And a lot, because they have so much discretion, they are the most powerful. 
um, because they decide who gets charged and with what they will get charged. And so that by the time they get to the judge in a trial, the judge is limited in many cases as to the actual sentencing that can be given because they've already been dictated to by what the prosecutor has charged the person with. So a lot of people took exception to that. Um, and I said, all you have to do is go back and look at your records and see this person came to you, what did you charge them with? I said, it's so easy for you to do. And people, that scared people a lot to actually have to go back. But then I gave them- have someone kind of reviewing their- They can review their their own track record. And they were very afraid of coming to that reckoning. But if you don't do that and you then don't acknowledge that, oh my goodness, then you will keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. So you have, it's really important to accept the fact that it's one possible, that it doesn't necessarily make you a bad person at that point because you don't realize what it is that you have been doing. But if you don't go back and look at it, then you've got some issues. So New Jersey waves a lot of juveniles up as adults. If you look at the counties that have the least, the lowest percentage of people of color, they almost never wave juveniles up. So they're more likely to treat a a youth, a kid as an adult if they're a person of color. Correct. One thing that you talked about as well is implicit bias in this pipeline. So maybe I, I, I see that a prosecutor is a white man predominantly and as a young, white child, male child, I may think, oh, well, that might be a career option for me. So perhaps people who don't look like the officers of the court might choose to go into a different profession? Right. That's exactly right, too. So when I was in law school, African-Americans did not think about going to the prosecutor's office for the most part. We used to call it the persecutor's office. (laughs) Um, But that is just so wrong, such a wrong attitude to have because people need to be everywhere. Because That's even in law school that you're talking a, about. A, right. Oh, yeah. That's what I thought in law school. Why would I go to the prosecutor's office? You know, they're the bad guys. But without realizing that it's important to be everywhere because you, you should never have one of any kind of person or people anywhere because you're going to get monolithic decisions. So, you know, I like to use sports analogies. You can have the nine best pitchers in the world, but you would not want nine pitchers on your baseball team. You would never win a game. You need somebody to play all sorts of different roles um, and positions on the team. How about in the law schools themselves or entering law school? I think that US News and World Reports put unnecessary pressure on a lot of law school with regard to their rankings. I think too many law schools are just focused on their rankings um, and not necessarily who the best um, candidates will be. And rankings are based on, you know, how high is the LS, what what school do you have to get on the LSAT um, to be successful when I think that a lot of times people of color are not the best test Um, standardized test takers, and it's not necessarily a good barometer of how well you do in law school. And I think that that's been proven over and over and over again because I am convinced that I did not get a good LSAT score. And somebody I know who got a good one said that it must not have been good if I don't remember it. 
<laughs> but, you know, it did not prevent me from passing the bar the first time. It did not prevent me from ending up having a full scholarship because my grades were so good um, in law school. And so, um, you know, so I think that that people don't look at every aspect of an individual to determine whether they will make a good student and ultimately a good lawyer. They're too tied to LSAT scores. And that's not always the best way to determine whether somebody will be successful. Um, and then, you know, another thing that's going on is that you have these schools, a lot of them historically black law schools like North Carolina Central, Howard, Southern, um, um, Thurgood Marshall, where their LSAT scores are are a little lower, and and you have the Council on Legal Education actually going after them because um, saying that maybe they shouldn't be accredited, or exactly admonishing them if at any time they will they go lower than the standard on the bar passage rate. It's because you let these people in who have a law score. And if you eliminate those schools, which they're targeting to, um, to, to say that maybe they shouldn't accredit, then you're going to almost wipe out the Large. diverse. Oh, yeah. I would think it'd be good for us to talk for a minute about strategies in reducing implicit bias in the legal profession as lawyers. It seems like one of the takeaways of our conversation is that regardless of how kind and well-intentioned and perhaps even smart we may be, we're stuck with some of these biases because that's the way the brain works. What are, what are some of the strategies for, for people to, A, uncover the biases that they have and, and set them aside and make more thoughtful decisions. Okay, so one of the things that we didn't talk about is the implicit association test, which it measures the speed in which you connect two things together. And that helps to determine your unconscious bias. So that if you see the word good and you put it with a brown face, then that will tell you something, you know, how fast you do that will tell you. It's really a speed test. Each one takes about six minutes. And there's all sorts of tests you can take. You can take them for race, skin tone. You can take them for religion. You can even take it for hair texture now. You can take it for presidential. You can take it for weapons. You can take it for age. Point out some of your... No, and based on how fast you connect two thoughts together, it can tell you where you have some biases. All right, a quick break for those who are listening for MCLE credit. The code for this interview is 032719032719. And now back to the interview. What's an example of one of the of a question that you might see on one of these tests? So I think I told you the one about females and careers. I am among, I was among the 75% who saw women more with families and men more with careers. And so I, when you were taking this test, you actually saw your own bias. Oh yes, oh yes. And in other ways too that I won't discuss. <laughs> but um, you know, but I also thought it was interesting because I had, I did training for everybody on my firm-wide diversity committee and I had them take multiple tests before we actually had the training. There was a, a person who chaired the 
Boston group who was a member of LGBT and is married. And I am probably as straight as you can get, but he slightly favored heterosexual people and I slightly favored gay people. Hmm. which I thought was very interesting. So we decided maybe we should date. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I think that that is one tool that we can start with. The other one so, is... I, so the first tool is perhaps just getting a little more understanding of our own biases. That's right. And, and being brave enough to acknowledge it. I think that a lot of times we have, we don't, we sort of stay away from things that we don't think are comfortable like people still have a lot of discomfort talking about race, for example. I think that we need to start moving towards things that are not necessarily comfortable for us. It's the same people who don't like to do business development, mm. um, you know, but you force yourself to do it. You go out there and do it. So you're moving towards something that's uncomfortable to you. So you, you can do the same thing with regard to your biases. You start moving towards what you think may be uncomfortable to you. And you may get surprised because you may find out you have more in common with that person than you thought you did or that you thought you didn't couldn't possibly have anything in common with them when you actually do. I think the other thing is that you have to do a critical self-analysis. What have I done? What can I do to make sure somebody else is absolutely included? Who, how diverse is my personal universe? Who lives next door to me? Who do I go to church with? What movies do I go to see? What kind of music do I listen to? Is this an opportunity for me to experiment and try something different? So to not see even how, in the office place, but oh yeah, just generally. Yeah, yeah, because if your universe is more diverse, then maybe you're more likely to be more inclusive in the workplace. Hmm. So maybe one step See, see where your biases lie. Right. Except to you know, try and make an effort to step outside of that comfort zone that right. you, you may have. Right. And so when you see what type of biases you may have, then the next time you encounter a person against who you might have that unconscious bias, you put yourself in check. And only when you've done your own self-analysis and very critical analysis of what it is you're doing, then you can help put other people in check, too. But it's an ongoing process. It doesn't, like, you know, like we talked about in the beginning, it remains in the mental residue of us. So we can't always just let it completely go, but we have to train ourselves not to act on it in a negative way. Paulette, thank you for joining us today on this important topic. Thank you. It's been a real privilege. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.